There's a long history of efforts to empirically assess experimental therapies, and even the use of control groups in such trials dates back centuries. But concealed random assignment of participants to experimental and control groups only began in the 1940s as a solution to methodologic problems such as selection bias. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Scott Podolsky, an Associate Professor of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Podolsky has co-authored a perspective article about the emergence of the randomized control trial. Dr. Podolsky, you write in your article that evidence of trials involving experimental and control groups appears in the Hebrew Bible. Can you tell us what kind of trial is discussed in the Bible and what it's doing there? So, Steve, that dates to the book of Daniel and was a nutritional comparison. It was non-blinded, non-randomized, and I think did prove Daniel correct. Speaking of nutrition, you also talk in your article about a 1753 trial by the Scottish surgeon James Lind testing citrus fruit for scurvy. What can you tell us about that study? Where did the citrus hypothesis originate, and how did he design the trial? So as far as where the citrus hypothesis originated, I'm not sure. There was increasing quantification in therapeutic assessment in Britain in particular throughout the 18th century. And this was a trial where there was certainly scurvy endemic within the British Navy, and he compared those receiving citrus fruits with those receiving other remedies, and it was a small trial. Two people in each treatment group, in multiple treatment groups, and those receiving the citrus did recover best from the scurvy. You focused to some extent in your article on the alternate allocation method for control trials that began to be used in the 19th century. So assigning every other patient to receive an experimental remedy seems logical. What were the problems with that method? Sure, and this really is the major control trial model before the modern advent of the RCT. And we see it already taking place a bit in the early 19th century. There's a famous example in bleeding. It may have been apocryphal, but there was an Alexander Lassassier Hamilton who was allocating patients to different surgeons with different propensities towards bleeding their patients and supposedly seeing how they did. There was a comparison in the mid-19th century by, by Thomas Graham Balfour comparing belladonna, which is a homeopathic remedy for the prevention of scarlet fever. And so any time there was an element of skepticism, this model gets taken up. But very, very incrementally throughout the 19th century, we really start seeing it take off around the 1890s. And I have a number of hypotheses, but it's unclear exactly why it takes off at that point. It is increasing movement towards standardization of remedies in general, rather than just individualizing remedies towards a particular patient. There's increasing the number of hospitals and patients who could be evaluated there. There were the rise of immunotherapies, and at the same time, there was a good deal of quackery and skepticism and commercialism. So people really trying to divide therapeutic wheat from chaff. And in that setting, you see this increasing usage of alternate allocation, where patient A gets it, patient B does not get it, patient C gets it, patient D does not get it. And this first came to my attention when I was studying the history of the treatment of pneumonia with anti-pneumococcal antiserum, which was happening in the, from the 19-teens through the 1930s. And Metropolitan Life Insurance Company had lost over $20 million in the wake of the 1918 flu epidemic. And so there was no indication that there wasn't going to be another epidemic soon. So they started funding allocation trials at multiple hospitals in the Northeast. So at Bellevue Hospital, Harlem Hospital, at Boston City Hospital, trying to prove the use of antiserum for the cure for pneumonias that may well in the future result from the flu. So this was one lineage of such trials. It's the original question of what was the problem of alternate allocation. To some observers, there was the question of whether researchers could cheat the allocation scheme. So if I'm conducting this study and patient A gets it, patient B doesn't get it, patient C gets it, but patient D looks really sick. I really think this patient should get serum. Well, maybe I'll, I'll give this patient the serum, and then I'll just give the next patient not the serum and start over again. So there was this skepticism. 
both people like Max Finland here in Boston, and there are a number of these discussions in the pages of the New England Journal of Medicine itself, and most, perhaps importantly, Austin Bradford Hill, who ends up designing the 1948 streptomycin trial. In the early 1930s, he had been reviewing the British Medical Research Council's evaluation of antinomococcal antiserum, and he too thought that this alternate allocation scheme could be cheated. Importantly, he thought that if it was done purely, that it was just as good as it was, quote-unquote, random allocation, meaning statistically, it worked just fine. But it was the possibility of cheating the scheme that led him to really introduce concealed randomization into the 1948 trial. Surrey and Chalmers has pointed this out in his historical studies and others, that the advent of randomization was not based on any type of esoteric statistical methodological theory derived from Ronald Fisher and agricultural randomization, but was really a way to prevent the cheating of the allocation scheme that was part of alternate allocation studies for half a century. So were there any drawbacks to his ideas? Did he see, did Bradford Hill himself see any drawbacks to the concealed randomization method? article in, in the New England Journal of Medicine from 1952, where he's lecturing at Harvard about the clinical trial. And he would say the chief drawbacks both then and now were the ethics. And certainly there were concerns even with alternate allocation. When people in the 1920s were saying, look, to study the usage of antiserum for pneumonia, you need to do a controlled study, others would say, and some of the most foremost proponents of the serum, like Rufus Cole, would say, it's ethically unjustified. I've already proved in the lab that this works. I've shown in this case series that it seems to work. I really can't withhold this remedy from anyone. And that tension was present then, and it was certainly present during Hill's time, who would say, look, there are certain things like penicillin for streptococcal infections I don't think we need a randomized trial for, but there are many things that we do. The 52 article discusses the various types of broad-spectrum antibiotics and emerging for pneumonia, requiring study to determine which one is the best, and certainly the uh, utility of drugs like streptomycin for tuberculosis. So the RCT, I think, still represents the gold standard in trial design, but finally, what are some important ways in which it has been developed since the 1940s? What's changed since the 1940s? So in the construction of the ideal trial, there are a number of components, and randomization is just one, creating pure, unbiased allocation of patients and therefore even groups between active and control groups. But in the overall model of trial, there's also been efforts to ensure unbiased assessment, right, unbiased measurement of outcomes. And this entails both a different lineage of innovation, of blinding of both patients and of the researchers. And some of this dates back, again, to the 16th century. Blinding of patients dates back to exorcisms. And people like Ted Katchuk have pointed this out, that you could do sham exorcisms and real exorcisms and see who has better outcomes. Benjamin Franklin introduced this into the assessment of mesmerism in the late 18th century, where they could do sham interventions and control interventions to see which ones quote-unquote work. So there was extensive skepticism around blinding of patients, and there was also skepticism of observers. There's this term that emerges in the mid-19th century in the medical literature, borrowing from the astronomical literature, called the personal equation. And if you and I are looking at the stars and measuring it, we may see things just a little bit differently. And this gets taken up in the pages of the journal and other journals as assessing how observers view their outcome, bringing our own personal biases into it. So we start seeing efforts to blind researchers when possible already in the early 20th century. By 1950, Harry Gold at Cornell defines the term double-blind. So the double-blinded randomized control trial eventually becomes the standard. And it starts becoming more utilized already in the 1940s and 1950s, but there's no regulatory mandate for this. Right? The FDA is not mandating this at this time. So there's still certainly other motivations for people to just do case series and other types of justifications for their trials. The RCT receives an important regulatory um, stimulus in the 
1960s, where as a result of the 1962 Kefauver-Harris amendments, new drugs have to be proved efficacious based on adequate and well-controlled studies. And as there is legal contestation by the end of that decade of what, what that means, the FDA formally defines that by 1970 as the modern randomized double-blinded control trial, if at all possible. Thank you, Dr. Podolsky.